Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Pianist, composer, and entertainer Chili Gonzalez is no ordinary musician. Originally from Canada, he has broken a Guinness World Record for the longest solo piano concert, scored a Grammy for his contribution to Daft Punk's random access memories, and seamlessly switches from working with Boys Noise to Feist to Drake. In 2018, Chili Gonzalez launched his Conservatory, a traveling and all-expenses-paid music school, teaching aspiring musicians how to become performers. Key to Gonzalez's work is a desire to push the boundaries of what's considered entertainment, continuously tackling the highbrow-lowbrow dichotomy. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy in Montreal, Gonzalez opens up about his formative years, his time in Berlin with Peaches, and how Franz Liszt birthed the musician as celebrity. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Very big welcome, Chili Gonzalez. Thank you, and pleasure to be here. So you studied music here at McGill University in Montreal, and I wondered what your view is on what any artist should try and get out of any school situation. Well, I have the feeling that whenever there's anything institutional behind music, it serves a great purpose for musicians because it, it breeds conformity in general. So when I went to university, I had to fight against the conformity, and I had to fight against people whose ideas I really didn't agree with, sort of musical purists who put uh, musical information and styles really into clear categories. And if you're someone who dreams of combining categories, for example, it's good to look in the eyes of those people that are essentially your enemy. (laughs) And at the same time, be smart enough to take the good parts that you can get out of a school situation. I think here there must also, in its own way, even though you're a very diverse group of open-minded people, when groups get together and there's institutions and structure, some people will start to conform. And even in this situation, it might be good for you to look into the eyes of someone you disagree with musically. So I think you have to sort of have an oppositional personality when you go into a school situation, but not so much that you're just being uh, sort of a systematic rebel uh, and picking and choosing the moments to say, okay, I'm going to trust now that this Beethoven guy knows a little bit something about music. And so I'm going to, you know, stick my nose in the score and figure out what it is that gives me the goosebumps. But if I, if I heard a piece of music that I thought was too intellectual or I didn't feel anything or cheesy or unlistenable, or, then I could also understand why that is, but feel free to reject going any deeper and just saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, screw this, I don't like this. But this, this I love. That's what school is for. So for you, is it partly about learning how to do it properly so you can do it wrong? Well, it depends what parts of your musical personality, I think. For you, though? You would like, well, in my case, I was very interested in how harmony works. So that was a a place where I chose to be a good student, essentially, and to trust my teachers and let them lead me. And then there were other aesthetic things. Like, for example, when you study classical music, there's there's a... There's a lot of pieces that have a very deep structure, 
pieces that might be 12 or 14 minutes long with very few repeating moments, for example. And because I was already in my mind pretty sure I wanted to make miniature songs, more like songs with the structure of pop music. So right away there was a moment where I said, I'm just, I'm just going to reject this. I gave it a chance, but I'm not interested in deep structure. I don't even want to get good at recognizing deep structure. It's not something I'm interested in. Uh, and uh, I started to wear it like a badge of honor that I wanted to make the kind of music I wanted to make, which was music with classical colors and a jazz touch, but fundamentally using the structure of pop music. That's sort of the formula I got to. Uh, but something like harmony was something that I realized you can't really do harmony the way I wanted to do it without having some training. You can't just bumble into the kind of harmony I wanted to do. I think with rhythm and melody, you can be quite instinctive. You can trust your instincts. You can just be a natural. But with harmony, if you want to go into the deeper storytelling aspects of harmony, which is what I wanted to do, then I decided, okay, for this subject, I'm just going to be a model student and take it really seriously. So another kind of school for you was a basement in Toronto with Peaches and Mocky. What kind of school was that? Well, that was, a, that was a great reminder, I guess, of that fun should be the first goal of music for the way I want to do it. And um, I grew up playing music with my older brother, and we would just jam for hours and hours. And uh, that was already a great way to understand that music can be communication between people. So what kind of musical communication went on between you and your brother then? Uh, we did, he was older, so I, of course I, I admired him and looked up to him. He was a much better pianist than me at that point, so I was in various... At that various, point being the key phrase. Well, yeah, I, I, I vanquished him at some point. Um, so yeah, I basically um, accompanied him. You know, I would play drums, a lot of percussion instruments, or sometimes I would literally look over his shoulder, he would be on, a, like, on some synthesizer like a Juno 60 or something from the DX7 from that time. And he would literally be playing something into the four track and I would just get behind his shoulder and just like add a note and annoy him. And, you know, it was the best note. It was like the a best kind note, of, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Kitchen reload. <laughs> um, so you had this stuff at home? Yeah, there was some very minimal. There was like a four track and uh, a couple of synthesizers and um, a piano, obviously, most importantly. A couple of drums. So the kit side of it, you had that home because your brother was interested in that stuff and had it, or because were, was there something in your family about that this stuff was being used anyway? Well, my grandfather was the source of the music for my brother and I, and he he was a uh, he left Hungary in very extreme circumstances in the forties, coming from a Jewish family in Hungary, and he was like a bit angry that he had been forced to leave, and so he was kind of kicking and screaming here in Montreal, and so he was very intent for his grandchildren to get the best of a sort of European touch. So from a very early age, around three years old, I was already sort of being sat on the piano bench and being told about these wonderful uh, straight white male geniuses from that time, you know, and, and how they should be respected and all that. So at the same time, I was watching much music. For those of you who aren't Canadian, that's the pathetic Canadian attempt at doing MTV, and I would be watching much music and dreaming of, of that. And because you know, my grandfather, I'm grateful that he brought music into, into my life, but he really had some outdated ideas about European superiority. And he actually 
you know, had the opinion when he was seeing my brother and I watch MTV. He just, I guess he really looked down on that. And um, again, you have to look into the eyes of your musical enemy, you know. And my grandfather was the first of those. And so he motivated me. I wanted to prove him wrong. Uh, when he would say, there will never be a black Mozart, for example. I'm watching Lionel Richie and going, that's black Mozart, you know? And uh, so I wanted to prove him wrong also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did he or maybe, your... Maybe, maybe not Lionel Richie. I, I can see you're all like, what? Lionel, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I didn't get the prince, right? Oh, everyone loves yeah, so Prince's black Mozart. Maybe let's say that your grandfather didn't have the kind of lived experience of diversity in his friends and family that may have allowed him to have a different view on things. Well, I gave him that view on things at some point, my brother as well, because we, we showed him that our passion for music wasn't just limited to what he thought it should be limited to. So I think we, you know, in some way, we just, we were another example that proved it wrong, you know. So this basement where you met Peaches and Mocky, you're in there and you're all kind of playing instruments and you could play certain things, but you were playing other things. What's this idea that you have about just because you can play something doesn't mean you should? Well, it's not my idea. It's all great musicians have that idea. A, A good musician never shows off. Uh, only uses virtuosity in the service of something important and emotional, hopefully. So uh, I'm pretty sure everyone here in this room, none of them are probably trying to become, you know, virtuosic technically and physically at at their various instruments. I think many people here are open-minded to electronic music, and, you know, there are whole styles of music that... uh, that have no place for virtuosity in a really positive way. Most electronic music, rap music. Uh, right now, it's only in sort of session musicians that you still find this uh, kind of masturbatory approach to music, which is clearly not something I think that anyone here would would count. And so it's, it's not such a radical idea. It's just, you know, does is the music... You just do what's right for the music, obviously. And uh, I don't think I have to tell any of you that. You just mentioned rap. And hip-hop's been a kind of, you know, uh, important thread for you in terms of the music that you've loved, the music that you've made, and then also the music you've become involved in later on. And I wondered, you know, you kind of, you know, you had your sort of supervillain MC, Chili Gonzalez. And I wondered, like, if your teenage hip-hop-loving self would be impressed there with isn't, the stripes. There is no teenage hip-hop-loving self. I only got into rap in my uh, mid-20s. Okay, so your mid-20s hip-hop-loving right. self, would that person be... Happy about the stripes that you know that you now have by kind of working with some of the biggest names in hip hop. I don't think about my past selves in that way. If um, you were to cast your mind back, you know, I got interested in rap as a way of having a career. What got me interested in rap first, because I was I had a lot of musical snobbery. I'll admit it. You know, it took me a while to learn some of these lessons that I now try to impart to other musicians because. I was caught up in the technicality and virtuosity of music. I was the musical masturbator for quite a while. And I was only interested in what was complex and maybe wanted to impress people, all the traps that trained musicians can fall into. And then I started to try to make my own music, and people kept on telling me, it's a, we can't tell if you're serious or not, because I wanted to have the music be playful. So this is when you were kind of like... 
rapping under the Chili Gonzalez? No, name? before that. Wait, that. well before that. Well before that. This is you know in my early twenties when I was just struggling to to get out of the musiciany approach to music, and remember that that's not how the rest of the world experiences music. They don't care if I'm technically good. They just want to feel something. Uh, and so in that conversion period when I started to make music, a lot of people seemed to imply that I should make a choice between being serious or taken seriously or that my music should have the hallmarks of being taken seriously, whatever that would mean. Or there's also the playful quality, the sort of idea that music is a toy that you should be able to sort of pick apart as a child would, not to respect it too much, actually. And so they felt this deep respect for the musical language. At the same time, they could feel that there was this other disrespectful side. And they kept on telling me to choose. And when, when rappers, for me in, the, in my early 20s, it was around the time of Busta Rhymes, Wu-Tang Clan, that sort of, that sort of golden, late 90s, mid-90s golden age. And they, and they were people who didn't have to choose. And I said, how is it possible that they can be playful and childlike and negative actually petty. They're not trying to put across some image of themselves as like good people or correct people. They're like fully realized, three-dimensional and also larger than life with these crazy names, Busta Rhymes, Method Man and all these. And that was sort of the click. I was like, oh, they don't have to choose, you know? So I didn't even think about rapping or making a beat. I just thought I'm going to take that approach and apply it to my music. That was my first sort of influence was how to, how to, ignore that false choice. Mm-hmm. Or I think uh, in your phrase, keeping it real versus keeping it surreal. Maybe. Which in itself. <laughs> Good try. Good try. So when did you discover that Drake was a fan of your piano music? Do you guys know who Drake is? Drake is a uh, rapper from Toronto. You guys know what Toronto is? Uh, and he um, used, without permission, a piece from my uh, first solo piano album. It's called The Tourist. It's an instrumental piece of music. And um, on his mixtape, which is called So Far Gone, which was kind of his breakthrough mixtape before he did his first real album, two-thirds of the way through, there's an interlude. It's called Outro. Uh, and there's basically the sound of a champagne cork popping. And then my piece plays in, in its entirety. So it's not even a sample. It's It's... <laughs> So, it's a do what you like methodology. He, 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 he didn't sample it and turn it into a song. He didn't sing on top of it. Um, his only sort of aesthetic change was to add the champagne uh, cork popping. Uh, and there was no credit. You know, I really felt of two minds. Of course, I was very flattered that this music had ended up there. I fantasized about rap and always thought, you know, if someone listens to a lot of rap... Will they hear that I listen to a lot of rap just through my piano playing? You know, because when you play the piano, there's no beat, there's no rapper. So if you have a sort of view of what rap should be as what instruments and what people are doing, then yes, it's not rap. But in my mind, there's always the rap beat playing when I'm playing the piano in a way in my head. And I always wondered, would someone who is in that world recognize that? So it was very flattering. But of course, there's the whole problem of then feeling like, well, no one knows, you know, and it didn't say the tourist. Uh, it, he renamed it and everything. And I went, when it was on YouTube at first, I went and looked at the comments and I had a few defenders there like, this is Chili Gonzalez. And then someone else like, I didn't know Drake could play the piano. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what happened then? 
Well, what, what then began a couple of years where I had to be very, very patient, uh, waiting for my chance to maybe work with him one day. And we were sending music back and forth a little bit, but nothing really, really happened on his first album. And then I got a call to come uh, play at the Junos. Now, if you don't know what the Junos are, it's Canada's pathetic attempt to have the Grammys. And uh, the Junos was being hosted by Drake that year, 2011. And for the opening sketch, he wanted to do something where he'd be in a tux, kind of like, almost like a lounge singer. And he asked me to come play piano for that sketch. So I did the opening sequence of the Junos with him. And that led to, very spontaneously, uh, hey, do you want to come by the studio? And then I went to the studio. Hey, do you want to hear some new songs I'm working on? And he played me a sort of halfway finished version of Marvin's Room. Maybe you know that song. And I was... I think I was very emotional because I was kind of living my dream. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the studio with, with a rapper. This is what I dreamed of for so long. Uh, and so I was, I was quite emotional. And, and when he played me the song and the lyrics and everything, and it really got to me. And honestly, my eyes became a little wet just <laughs> as I was hearing Marvin's Room. It's a very emotional song. I'm sure you've all cried to Marvin's Room at some point, right? Uh, and then he said, hey, do you want to add some piano? And then I ended up playing an outro on a very, just a synth that was sitting there like, a, like an M1, like a really bad 90s synth. And I thought I was just showing, well, it could be something like this. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, and then they're going to rent me a grand piano the next day and I'm going to do it for real, right? And I do the outro, no pedal, right? Those of you who play piano might know that without a pedal also to do something, you know. So I was kind of like struggling and then, you know, I'm kind of like, like, yeah, like this, like this. And they were afterwards, they were like, whoa, you know. <laughs> And they were like, that's it, obviously. And that was it. That's the, that's the 90 seconds that you hear at the end of Marvin's Room is just me sort of like unknowingly just transferring the wetness in my eyes to the, <laughs> to the, to the keyboard and uh, making the song cry, as Jay-Z would say. You know? <laughs> was there ever a period where you stopped playing? Yeah, a little bit. You know, in, in the, my early Berlin days, I was... I loved the idea that you could just have a mini disc. You know, when I would be on tour with Peaches in the sort of early 2000s, uh, that sort of Electro Clash Berlin era. Uh, and it was just great because you could just have a mini disc with your instrumentals and just sort of be the personality and be the face of the energy you wanted to, to transmit and also influenced by how easy it was to do a rap show in, in certain ways. And so it was refreshing to not have to always think, oh, is there going to be a piano there? Do I have to carry a synthesizer with me? And I, it felt very liberating. Uh, and so for that time, also because I lived in, you know, uh, difficult circumstances, I didn't have enough money to have a piano or gear with me in the early Berlin days either. So uh, quite a few years went by when I would only play a piano when I was in a place that had one, whether it was a studio or a friend's house or something. And uh, I definitely let it go for three or four years there. So before we kind of, because that quite naturally leads us to talk to about the reintroduction etudes, the score books that you made, particularly for people who do want to pick something up again. But I just want to stay in Berlin for a little minute. Can you um, paint us a picture of Berlin in this period of time? Because it was a, a period of great creativity. It was a period where people first started moving to Berlin in the wave which continues, you know, 16 years on. Um, what was the kind of average week for you and Peaches and your pals around that time? Well, we were in a bubble with just the few of us that were sort of there together and, you know, we, we sort of shared apartments and were on tour a lot and were kind of 
we were realizing that our dreams were coming true. All the dreams and frustrations uh, that we had while we were in Canada still struggling so much and thinking, maybe we should go over there. Maybe it's going to be better for us over there, like this weird instinct. And when we were proven right, like, whoa, okay, something about changing the frame, whether it was just us that were changed by the freedom of being somewhere new or whether there's actually something different in people's perception there, it's hard to know. But it was uh, just like an extremely positive fever dream for all of us. But it was a pretty intense time, wasn't it, musically, in terms of the things you were doing and, and pretty hardcore? Yes. Give us a bit more. I, I want to know, because you know what, you, you sometimes, you look at some of the, uh, the kind of images and the, some of the bits of very raw footage that were captured from that time, and there was definitely a, a rawness and a freedom to the things you were doing, and it would be kind of, I don't know, yeah, but there's so much conformity in every scene, you know? So I, I identified the weak spot, you know? That's what I do. I try to look for where is there something I can add to with my skill set uh, because it's all well and good, but like any scene, you just see that there's, okay, what is everybody doing that they don't even realize they're doing? You know, what is the sort of assumption that no one inside this scene will ever be able to really question. And it was about facelessness. There was a pride taken in facelessness that I thought was... Uh, ripe for challenging. And so both Peaches and I, I think, instinctively took our sort of more Canadian, extroverted, musical theatre background, essentially, something that's you know cheesy to most people, especially in, in Germany, where they're, they're fairly straightforward and not, they're not a, a very expressive, extroverted people generally. Well, of course, there's exceptions, but it is true there is a certain dryness there and a certain intellectual distance that in Canada... Speaking we were, very generally, of course. We were more goofy. You know, we were just like goofy Canadians. And, and Peaches, of course, was a drama teacher. I have written musicals. Uh, and we both really have that sort of exuberance that comes with like, let's put on a show. And uh, so that's the energy we brought to the sort of Berlin uh, techno scene. I know, do you guys know a guy named Alec Empire? Have you heard of him? So he's, he's um, when we moved to Berlin, he was kind of the, the guy who was the ambassador for that uh, Berlin sound. He had a very dark, he has a very gothic, serious image, always scowling, never smiling, and a very valid, strong image. I, I really, truly admired the guy, but I thought he was ripe for uh, sort of to be a foil for me. So um, to make this point about facelessness and have fun doing it, I decided to say that I'm going to run for president of the Berlin Underground. <laughs> and of course, no one in the Berlin Underground wanted to be called the Berlin Underground, right? It's like, no, don't put us in a group. And I'm like, no, 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 I want to be president of all of you, Berlin undergrounders, you know? And I challenged Alec Empire to be my opponent. And uh, he really hated me for it um, because I was sort of bringing him in uh, to a game that he didn't want to, uh, to, to play, you know? It was um, slightly Trump-esque, I would say, was my approach back then. <laughs> I wanted to drag people down into a, a sort of mud fight they didn't want to have because I wanted to disturb their sort of comfort at always just sort of, you know, never questioning. Is it really such a good idea to be faceless? Is it really such a good idea to be anti-everything, anti-planning, anti-success, anti-enthusiasm? Why do you, you know, for some people it really works. And for Alec Empire, he was the perfect foil because... I respect anyone who finds the way to get their music across, and Alec Empire found that image. But it was also ripe as to sort of be a counterfoil to the message I wanted to send at the time. 
So aside from uh, presidential, I, by the way, activity. he didn't he didn't accept to be my opponent, <laughs> and I didn't want to win by acclamation. But I did do a press conference in, and we and we got hold of the people who booked the place where they do the press conferences in Berlin. It's called the Bundes Press Conference, and uh, we rented that, and I was able to do my uh, sort of my concession speech uh, in that in that context. So what's the line through from the kind of you know the sort of performance? aspect of what you were doing in Berlin to the kind of performer that you are now, you know, on stage, uh, holding courts, playing music, um, interspersing what you're playing with the kind of, you know, repartee. What's the through line? How did you get from one to the other? Well, it evolved fairly naturally. When I started to finally have pianos at my shows and gradually realized, okay, that there's a way for me to bring this into, into, into my world. It just happened naturally, I think. And, um, you know, some of the really provocative attention-getting stuff was great in those first few years to get me that attention and to get me the platform and to get people intrigued. But I also realized that it should take its proper place among other elements after a while. Because I think if I was only doing that, only being a sort of provocative person, uh, it has its own way of getting quite old. And, you know, there are musicians like that, right, who are just a bit like, oh, come on, you know. Yes, I appreciate that you're out there pushing everyone's buttons, but there's also a time to maybe show other sides of yourself. At least that's how it felt to me. And so that led to me doing a piano album, and uh, the reaction to that was so much more positive than I, than I could have imagined, that it really changed the direction of how I wanted to be on stage and always have access to a piano now. Because you kind of hung up your mic, didn't you, in 2004, sort of officially retiring? I called it a... Pre-tirement. Oh, okay. It was. I did a tour with uh, Peaches and Feist and Maki and sort of all the my musical family at the time, and we did a, a tour that was kind of like a roast. So there was a table at the back, and everyone was kind of, and we would just take turns performing and playing a little bit with each other on certain songs, and then sort of doing some stuff all together at the end. And that was the pre-tirement tour, uh, and that, that pre-tirement lasted around two years, and then I came back with solo piano. So the pieces of music on solo piano. Why are they themes? piano themes, not songs. Is there a difference? Because of the platonic world of forms. Because you can reduce, in my opinion, every musical style uh, and find something on the piano, which is this instrument that just won't die. You know, I mean, you go into any studio of electronic music and there'll be at least one little MIDI keyboard that has this map of these 12 notes. This thing has endured. Sometimes you go into your plugin on your laptop and then there's like a little strip that's in the shape of this, these 12 keys. So this interface of how we think of music, at least for, in my case, music will always be on this particular map. And, uh, and so to do piano albums means to you're playing everything. You're playing rap, you're playing orchestrally, you're playing... You can dream as much as you want because it's the platonic world of forms, best instrument. Because in a way, you know, that was kind of a, a debut album for you, wasn't it? I mean, obviously you'd made tons and tons of music beforehand under a variety of names, but I, I wonder if as often when people make their first record, they, they've had those songs, they've carried them around with them in some form or another for many years. I wondered, did the, the kind of songs which ended up on solo piano, were they things you kind of generated then or were they melodies and songs you'd had Kind of rotating around mix your head of a while. both mix of both there's there's always so much ongoing composition with me whether it's stuff I just sort of record on my phone at a sound check or something that just won't leave me alone 
I'm sure you've all felt those moments where there's something akin to like real inspiration where somehow you're like, whoa, it seemed to have made one of my best things in like 20 minutes. Those are great moments, but sometimes you just got to also sweat it out and, uh, and just like get into the weeds of it and, and at least finish it, even if you're going to throw it out later. But sometimes you forget how a song was made and then the reaction of the people sort of erases whatever trauma might have been involved in the making of that song and all of a sudden you're just feeling the 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 light of sort of communicate communication successful communication when someone goes like whoa I really love that song and so it can be the one you sweated over for two weeks and you'll sort of forget that you sweated it out and you'll sort of start to think oh yeah that's just a song that that's has now a new life because someone else has sort of illuminated it and Sometimes the one you think was so inspired because you did it in 20 minutes doesn't really connect. And then you also forget that exciting feeling you had of writing it quickly. And like, oh, okay. You, know, you, can, you can be wrong about how you feel when you make a piece of music. And it's only when it touches other people, when it sort of confronts the listener, it'll erase whatever origin story that song has because if it connects, you know, it's like so intense when someone tells you they like your song, right? When you see it in their eyes or like you're playing them a series of four or five demos and you just see when you play the third one that everyone's like, you know, or whatever. And, and you're like, okay, I got something here. I didn't know it, but this third song, this is the one that's connecting. Cool. I'm just going to trust these reactions. And for me, when I have a new album, it's usually pretty clear. So I focus group a lot as much as I can to try to find those moments because I'm not sure enough. I can't trust that if I feel good writing a song, it doesn't mean it's the one. And just because I maybe struggle with one and it's like total Frankenstein monster, like, oh, I used the bridge from that one from 10 years ago and transplanted it here. You don't see those seams anymore. You don't remember that trauma or that sweat when someone connects to it, you know? So that's the beginning of the second life of any piece of music is the look in the eyes of the person who's hearing it. What's the smallest amount of music you can use to convey intent? convey a feeling? Well, John Cage would argue zero notes. Um, I think you can tell a lot from a single note. You know, sometimes I'm talking about that MPC hit, you know, just like when you're sitting there and the sample's playing and you've got your bass drum pad loaded up and it's just like your sample starts. You know, and like you got you to gotta put everything into that, you know. So sometimes I'm, especially when you're part of a band or something, you might just have a, a riff playing, I don't know. Like, Eye of the Tiger or something, right? Like, you know, it's just... And, and, you know, you might, like, bring up someone who's like, I want to be a musician, and they're like... You know, and they're just like, they don't know, you know. And my friend Maki always talks about drumming. It's just, drumming is easy, you know? It's, it's, it's actually quite simple. You just have to know what to hit and how hard. You know, and in a way, that's, that means that with one single note, you can, or a single chord, you know, you can really give off a lot of attitude. You know, the same chord, those are two very different emotions. So what you put into it, I'm pretty sure if you do it right, the audience will know what that is, even if they can't put the name on it. They know that one was like gangsta, and the other one was kind of like sad, sad, you know? <laughs> So talking of like knowing or not knowing, you know, obviously with a lot of training, you get to know. What if you don't have the benefit of a lot of training? How can you connect to the kind of universal ways in which we respond to sound? Well, you have an advantage. The training will make it harder for you to learn that lesson. That's why it took me till my late 20s to sort of understand what music actually is for most people 
and that I wanted to be part of music for non-musicians and musicians alike. I, you know, I didn't want to think about impressing other musicians, and that took me longer. So I think someone like Peaches, who didn't have a lot of training, but uh, had a very systematic approach to learning how she made music, she had an advantage. You know, she, When I met her, I was still looking for what was my voice and what, what, what did I really like. It seemed like I had too many options because I'd been trained so much. It was like, okay, how do I really, where's my taste? You know, I can almost appreciate anything. Isn't that weird? I should decide what I really like and love. And when I met Peaches, even if you gave her a banjo, you know, she would pick it up and it would sound like Peaches on a banjo in, in 10 seconds. Whereas I might pick up a banjo and be like, oh, how can I sound like a country banjo player or something, you know? And uh, uh, so people with no training have an advantage, but they need to have the attitude of a student in some way. They have to listen and be curious. And when they love something, they should try to take it apart in some way. You know, With classical music, you can say, I love those bars, let's see what Brahms did. And yes, I can learn something. But most of all, it's just, it's just listening and figuring out, okay, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel transported by this? Okay, let me listen. Oh, there's a lot of reverb on her voice. Okay, what does that mean for me? Let me try a song where I put a lot of reverb on my voice. Am I, am I getting that feeling of transporting someone like I had? If not, what am I doing different? All that stuff. You just, you need the attitude of a student at the very least, you know. But Peaches has a system of music in her head. I'm sure of it. I've seen it at work. It, I happened to learn a system that was in books. And uh, that's one way of doing it. But Peaches instinctively feels all those things. It just has maybe different words in her own mind for them or just different associations. But there is a textbook in her head. It's just only her own at the moment, you know. So talking of textbooks, what did you want people to get from the reintroduction etudes, so the, the, the score books and the, the kind of stuff that came along with that? That was for people who had a little bit of piano teaching in their in their past. You couldn't enjoy that book if you hadn't had at least maybe two years when you were a child or young adolescent or a teenager. Um, then the book can be useful. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be useful because it's based on that old way of representing music with the dots on the lines, you know. Okay, so for the picker-upperers, the people that are starting again, like how, how do you pick something up when you've dropped it after a while? It's quite a lot of, there's quite a lot of stuff in the way, isn't it, between starting again when you stopped? I don't know. I, you know, I, I, luckily, I luckily learned discipline and I learned that if I want to accomplish what I want to accomplish in music, there's going to be moments where I have to be very bored perhaps or uncomfortable uh, to get a bigger payoff later, but that's not something. I mean, there's people who just will never be able to really do that, and that's I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, in your training, you learn a lot about the kind of classical greats, and you wrote a really nice essay. I, I don't remember who for where you kind of uh, recontextualized them for us. Maybe if you don't know too much about classical music, all those composers just kind of sit in a band together. They're just classical people. Um, can you? do us a little breakdown of how we might understand some of those greats, who their modern comparators are. Well, my personal hero is Franz Liszt. Uh, Franz Liszt, I think, more or less had more to do with creating the musical world that we're still in. Uh, he's, he made it about the combination of personality and music. And so he invented a lot of things we take for granted in performance. He was the first to do a solo piano recital one person, one piano for two hours. No one thought that could, no one thought the attention of the audience could be kept until Liszt did it. What did and people think the piano was for then? 
playing songs in between, you know, like it was all variety show kind of thing. And it was just like, it was about the music in a way. And List was like, no, it's about me. And that's the world we're in now. Uh, and he created celebrity culture around music. He created the idea that um, you should have a persona that is a fantasy. He wanted people to think he had made a deal with the devil to be able to become such a virtuoso. And he sort of allowed that to uh, spread without really confirming or denying it, much in the way, you know, it's without List, there would be no Kanye saying, I am a god, it's, or me saying, I'm a musical genius. These are fantasies that let us in to, to someone's, uh, you know, List didn't sort of make the mistake that some musicians still make today in thinking like, there is no artifice in what I do. I'm just myself when I go up on stage. And that's impossible. That is literally impossible. It's so artificial what's happening right now. There's no way for me to be myself here right now, nor is there a way for you to be yourself. Something changes. Something overrides normal social interaction and something called the performance begins. Now, is that, does that mean that this is bullshit? Not at all, because what you're seeing is a fantasy of mine, right? A fantasy to be listened to with rapt attention by all these people is a great fantasy of mine, that everyone cares what I have to say, and that people see me with a certain uh, maybe respect or, uh, you know, think I'm really good looking and, um, and, and obviously think that I uh, am a musical genius. That's a fantasy that I'm living out up here right now. And it's um, more revelatory, right? Look at David Bowie and Prince, who we lost this year, two of the greatest legends. These are not musicians who said, I'm just going to go up there and be myself. You know, they changed their names in both cases, or shortened them or whatever. They created alternate versions of themselves, and they lived out a fantasy. And yet we don't say, like, David Bowie's full of shit. No one would say that. No one would say that Prince was full of shit. You know who's full of shit? Stupid singer-songwriters who say, I'm just going to go up there and be myself. They're full of shit. Whereas List was not. Oh, List, right. Yeah, List um, was the first, yeah, I think, to, to really get that and to put that personality out there, the fantasy first. Okay, so we get an idea of List and what he was like, which maybe is over and above what we, we might get from the ways, you know, if you're not in the classical world, you might just hear it sometimes, I don't know, on the radio or something. You wouldn't necessarily yeah, but it's engage funny with it. Because but, so what you're doing but, is you're bringing it back to life for us. Yes. But, but I just want to say about List, List doesn't have that many compositions. that are, you know, He's a musical figure. He's a transformative figure. But it's, if you look at the more famous composers, they have, much, they have many more well-known songs. You don't hear List performed that often in modern-day concerts, but his shadow hangs over everything, including rap and including any performance-based music, any music that at all is meant to... He, he really made it about communication. He made it about like, yes, there's an audience and there's a performer and there's something magical that can happen, which involves a lot of generosity on the part of the uh, performer, but also depends on the generosity of the audience. You know, this very, very delicate dance between performer and audience that I love to explore and I test the tension of that bond and see if it'll break and hopefully it doesn't. And all that, I think, can be traced to List, who, you know, would make a show, of course, of breaking piano strings and uh, gifting them to the, the hot women in the audience. And, you know, he, he, he had a sense of that showmanship and he had a sense of not hiding parts of his personality that might be egomaniacal and uh, megalomaniacal and, and, and not, you know, not trying to pretend he doesn't have an ego, but using that ego in service of something uh, 
much more useful, I think, in the end. You know, and that's I have a song called "The Grudge," which is all about um, taking negative energy and not thinking, "Oh, I shouldn't feel that. I shouldn't feel competitive with the, the musician who I'm jealous of." I would say, drive into the skid. You know, they say drive into the skid, right? You don't like if you're about to skid in your car, you don't drive the other way because you'll go. You like go shit. We're going right. Okay, we're going right. We're driving. We're doing this. You know, and that's what we have to do. It's like I'm jealous. I'm competitive. Okay. Go. Okay, we're doing this. Fuck that guy, you know? <laughs> and and you use that energy for a positive thing. You you use it to motivate you as well as all the wonderful advice that you get about, you know, be yourself, take risks, don't compare yourself to other people. That's not 100% realistic maybe. At least it wasn't for me. And I decided at some point, I don't want that to eat me from inside. I'm going to put that into the songs. I'm going to put that on stage. I'm going to let people feel it because I'm pretty sure most people feel that way. And so they're going to identify. And and I think up until List, you know, composers were also in this mode of just like, oh, it's all about the music and that don't get me involved and all that. And List was sort of like, no, it's it's okay to be... It's okay to let people know that your fantasy is to sort of be the lord of music or whatever he wanted to be. Uh, and in my case, I dreamed of being a musical genius who was endlessly fascinating, and that's what I'm trying to play on stage. And uh, and there's a gap between reality and that fantasy, and I hope that's the source of sort of the, the, the emotional core of when you see a concert by someone. It's like, yeah, those guys aren't robots, right? But... Interesting that they want to be thought of as robots and that they sing with such feeling in their robot voice. I'm talking about Daft Punk guys, right? Um, that's the poetry, you know? The fact that there's like David Jones and David Bowie makes you wonder what's in between. And uh, that makes you sit up and pay attention. So before we kind of pass it out to you guys, I wanted to ask you about how uh, something fun that you did with your piano, Piano Talks, has turned into something else. And, and that is a good example of something you talked about earlier, you know, fun first, success later. What is Room 29? Oh, yeah, Room 29 is a project. It's an album I did with Jarvis Cocker, the singer of Pulp, uh, who was a neighbor of mine in Paris back around 2006 and we kept on running into each other. And then a, a very natural, slow-burning sort of friendship uh, sort of started to begin. And then we started to see about making some music together, starting very easy. He had to do some song for a movie, and I helped him with it. And we're kind of like dogs that were sniffing each other's butts for a while, basically. And then at some point, it turned into a real project around 2011, and the album will finally come out. So it's really something that's seven or eight years in the making that neither of us ever put on the front burner. Uh, and that's something I always I look for... The, the chemistry to be there before you like get in too deep and just because like wow it would be so cool to do an album with Jarvis Cocker well would it what if what if it wasn't a good fit then it wouldn't be such a good thing to do an album with Jarvis Cocker so I always wait and make sure I, I I'm not the easiest person to work with so I want to make sure that my strengths and my weaknesses will be understood sort of before I really get in too deep for fear of getting into something where I'm uncomfortable or also making the other person uncomfortable because maybe they've projected onto me that I'm much easier to work with than they think or something and they're going to find out that that I'm not a natural collaborator, you know? And I think maybe someone like Jarvis, who was a legitimate rock star in the 90s, comes from a different world than me. Uh, he also has his way of doing things and so it really took that time for us to realize, okay, we can do this. We know where the no-go zones are. We know where we can suspend the bad parts of our ego and where we can flex the good parts of our ego to make the, 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 the product great. 
So sometimes, like Alice in Wonderland, you need to walk away from the Red Queen's castle in order to get there. Better. Either that or your... Or the dog metaphor. <laughs> okay, so is there time for one more or are we at a point, we are at a point where we're just going to say Chile Gonzalez, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>